pull up a chair and join us at the Energy Roundtable. Welcome to the Energy Roundtable. This week, I'm here again with Bill Davidson, our Director of Engineering at CEM. Bill, welcome to the Roundtable. Glad to be here. Our usual uh, partner or um, uh, yeah, partner in crime, Lisa Katz, is back from her time off uh, becoming a mom, but she's uh, busy catching up. So uh, she has declined for this week, and Bill and I are left to bring you the news and notes of the week and then debate very important um, uh, matters of this world. Um, and this, this particular episode uh, of Energy Roundtable is brought to you by large movie franchises. Uh, one of which is um, in honor of tomorrow, uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi series releases a two-episode premiere, um, and you'll have to wait till the end to hear about the other large uh, movie franchise that is referenced in this Energy Roundtable. Uh, so to start us off, maybe, uh, Bill, I'll go first, and I'll share my first article, if that's okay with you. For sure. My article is from NBCNews.com, and it's uh, from the 23rd of May. And the headline is, Electric Vehicles Tease a New Energy Source, uh, Gravity. So uh, the the article goes on to profile a, several technologies that leverage the force of gravity uh, to, to generate energy. Now, when they say energy, they really mean electricity. Um, and I mean, there's some irony here because it's not new by any stretch of the imagination. Gravity via hydroelectric power has been around for well over, you know, probably 150 years, if not more. But what is interesting is is they talk about some interesting projects and a lot of it has to do with um, regenerative braking. So many of us who are in the EV space or not somewhat knowledgeable know that they use uh, regenerative braking um, to take you know when you brake on a car you can recharge the batteries with some of that um, that force so it's this concept of a motor and a um, and an alternator that they can work uh, in in both directions so but what they've what they're exploring what the article goes out to talk about is that um, in, in the right conditions, when our, when something is going downhill long enough at a at a steep enough angle, um, you can generate the same amount of energy uh, from that. So they go on to talk about uh, you need like a 10% uh, decline from top to bottom. Um, and so as an example, they talk about a large um, dump truck. So uh, from a company called Myoton, they, they manufacture something called the e-dumper. Um, I'm not sure about the marketing on that, uh, but uh, it's the world's largest electric vehicle, apparently. Uh, and so what happens is it works in Switzerland, and um, because it it goes downhill, um, it can charge on the way down, and it can uh, drive itself empty on the way back up. So it goes down with a heavy load, uh, and then it comes back up uh, fully under the power of batteries. Um, so that was, you know, a cool, the same principles used in Western Australia for a bunch of different trains uh, that are going downhill with uh, a full load and they can, through regenerative braking, uh, recharge. Um, and then the, the one that was really interesting to me was um, there's some work being done. It was a study, um, but basically looking at taking trucks full of water from the top of a hill 
and basically having the trucks go down full and have a battery on board and charge the battery all the way down, discharge that battery at the bottom, and then um, move back up. And you may say, well, what's the point? Well, hydroelectric, which is essentially the same thing, although the water is running through a pipe or over a mountain, uh, can be quite um, impactful on the surroundings and hard to permit. And, and, you know, so is this a way to replace hydroelectric by having trucks move it through um, roads as opposed to uh, impacting uh, wildlife through dams and penstocks? And so kind of, a, I don't know, part of me says it's kind of interesting. Part of me says this is kind of strange. Uh, but we always like to talk about new and emerging technology here. So um, moving a heavyweight downhill, charging batteries so you can go back up again. What do you think, Bill? I think it's pretty cool. I mean, you said right at the beginning, in the right conditions was your caveat. Right. And, and those right conditions, like how much do they actually come across? The the, the hydro one, um, obviously, you it seems like you would be able to use that a bit more because you're just charging a battery or char you're doing something with it. You're just charging it at the bottom. The, the, the carrying rocks one's a little different because... It seems to me in my mind, it's still really cool. You're using the potential energy that's that's been there because nature put it there a long time ago, whatever. That's that's cool. Um, but how often are you moving rocks downhill? <laughs> right. Like it just it just seems like a funny thing because it seems to me you're you're generally taking the rocks out of a quarry or something like that. You're going the other way. Um, so I don't know how you but but they had a particular application. Right. So it's not like it doesn't exist. We know that it does. So anyway, I, the mining I, industry has a lot to do uh, as it relates to decarbonization. So they're taking every opportunity they can. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, uh, as you say, any of these we want to look at and and, uh, and, and just in, in general, if you're talking about regenerative braking, like we all know that that's been been out there for quite a while and any sort of new novel ways that we can um, we can apply that. Uh, hey, I'm all for it. Let's go. Cool. Awesome. Up to you for the next okay. story. So um, wind and solar in in uh, in Texas is what is what I want to talk about. This one is uh, a little bit old, but I wanted to talk about it because it's an add-on to one that I had talked about the last time I, I was on, I think, which was um, I was talking about the the world essentially reaching 10% uh, uh, wind and solar, and um, I thought this was a good follow-up to it. So this is one. This one's from CBC. Uh, it says, "What's the epicenter of the oil patch? Texas now humming with wind and solar power." I would, as a side note, epicenter. When, when did that? come to mean center like and it's only used in media that i've ever seen epicenter literally means center now but anyway did it used to mean something else well no like epicenter means like uh, above the center or on top right that's what epi means but in, mm -hmm. in that context it literally just means center so i just what why do they put epi at the front it's like it's almost welcome. like welcome like, to the evolution of language i guess it's just strange to me anyway um so what, what was interesting about this to me was you know the first takeaway is that Wind power accounts for a huge 21% of that state's electricity produ um, production. I, I I was blown away by that. I know that they lead the U.S. in in in, uh, in renewables and that, but still, these numbers blew my mind. Um, this makes it number one in the U.S. and and it's it's on um, it's on pace to hit number one in solar in in a few years. Now that's debatable, to be clear, but I'll get to that in a second. Now. Um, I, the reason why I really find this surprising is that um, given what happened last year, right? right. I think I, I, everyone recalls what happened. There was this devastating blackout. It affected the Texas uh, power grid. Half the power plants in the state were knocked out. Uh, you remember all these stories about the insane power costs that people were being billed for, and, and more than two, 200 people actually died in that. Right. And although this was like a transparent political talking point, 
uh, frozen wind turbines were taking the lion lion's share of the blame, if you recall. And of course, yep. in, in reality, it ended up being um, gas plants mostly. Um, so the Texas Public Utilities Commission, remember Texas has its own grid, um, they brought in the mandatory weather protection rules last year after that. And it's, it's kind of funny if you look at the history of this, but basically they required that the standards laid out in two previous reports from the last time they had a major weather event, which was 10 years prior to that one, they're saying that those ones now have to be implemented because of the last one that happened just to complicate mm. things. So, uh, so right now the makeup in Texas is for energy production is uh, natural gas is still number one. Uh, wind just passed coal. Mm. Wow. Yep. And coal has halved in the past decade. Okay. And then at the bottom you got nuclear and solar and solar accounts for about 3%. As I, I, as I said up there, um, basically Texas uh, could overtake the king of solar, which is California, oh, if yeah. they keep going at their current rate. Um, they're, but it, they're less than half of California at the moment, so it's kind of a lofty goal. But yeah. uh, but from what I read, there's a lot of projects that, that are coming up here. So um, yeah, and anyway, that, I thought this was a, a pretty good uh, follow-up and uh, really interesting to see what that state has done in the last year. No kidding. And, and, and that those numbers are energy as opposed to capacity? Like that's, or I believe they are energy. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, very good. Cool. Uh, awesome. Um, my next article is from a, a website called Grist. Are you familiar with Grist? I've heard of it. Okay. So their tagline is climate justice solutions. So um, the headline is think climate action is expensive? Question mark. Inaction could cost 180, $178 trillion. Um, so that's that's trillion with a T for those uh, who aren't watching the subtitles. Um, so, and then they have an, another kind of uh, subheading to it, and they say, but zeroing out emissions could create a green industrial revolution, a new report says. So the article is profiling a recent um, report from Deloitte, uh, a large uh, consulting and accounting firm, uh, a report that was released during the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, which is going on uh, as we speak, I think, and maybe it's over. I don't know. I didn't get the invite this year, but have heard that it's uh, kind of a big deal. Basically, the, the article goes on to look at the what I would call the do nothing case, which is if we stay on our current course, um, it will cost us one hundred and seventy eight trillion dollars over the next 50 years. And what I really like about this article is this next phrase, because often when we hear those big numbers, you know, lots and lots of zeros, I think we become numb to them, right, because we don't really understand what they mean. But what what the, what they do is they put into perspective that currently we have about 500 trillion dollars worth of wealth on earth today so repeating that again if we don't do anything over the next 100 next 50 years it's going to cost us 178 trillion in costs when currently we have only you know a mere 500 trillion so a big big number um now they say the, the report says if we if we make some swift changes, um, we to really zero out global emissions, uh, global greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, that this could add 43 trillion to the global economy over the same period. So, I think what's really good about this, and I have not unpacked the report, although I really should, 
is it, it really looks at the do nothing case. And I think a lot of times in the discussion around climate action, we talk about it kind of, but we really digress into how much it's going to cost to do something. But we don't really look at the do nothing case. And the do nothing case, um, you know, basically talks about, well, if we don't do anything, um, we're going to have, you know, job opportunities dry up, we're going to have crops fail, we're going to have healthcare spending rise. Um, you know, you're going to have change in weather patterns, you're going to have the rise of sea level, more disease, um, you know, labor force productivity issues, and on and on and on. And so that's kind of what they built into their baseline for the model. Um, and, you know, that I think that really kind of paints a, a realistic picture. Now, whenever you see these types of models, you have to be cognizant of the fact that they're based on assumptions and they're based on, you know, predictions and things like that. So, you know, models are made to be, you know, put to a test and, and you know, subjected to scrutiny. Um, but it, when you really start to look at, you know, in those big dollars, and I would encourage people to read both the article and the study, but it really is a, is a, is a holistic approach to, hey, there's, a, there's an upside if we do something, and there's a massive cost if we don't do something. And I think we all kind of know that, or many of us know that, but once you start to put dollars to it, it starts to really, really hit home. So, uh, I would encourage everybody to check out the the Grist uh, article uh, about the Deloitte's uh, study. So I don't know if any initial reactions, Bill. But well, your very last line there is is what I find interesting. Cause I was thinking this the whole time that you're talking is that I like the framing here because um, there's there's lots of studies like this, right? And and in fact, I just read one from from last week that talked about um, health benefits of of reducing emi uh, emissions and it talks about how like fifty thousand people a year in the states. Uh, die because of the fact that we burn fossil fuels. It's an estimate, like you just said, whatever. And that is absolutely tragic. Um, it's it's more than people that die in car accidents. I think that's around 35K, something like that. But um, but along with that, it says, oh, and by the way, the healthcare costs are about 600 billion a year in the US alone. And I don't I don't know how to say this as as uh, apolitically as I want to, but we're, we're trying to get people to listen to this stuff that are usually a little bit conservative. Mm. And in my mind, that is, I mean, that's that's the, the group that's left, I guess, is that, <laughs> that we're trying to convince here. And it's in and, and, and uh, the way to do that is to really put these into dollars, just like yeah. you just did in, in that one. And 600 billion is, is just an unimaginable number. And this is per year. So right. and the and the and the numbers you just gave are, are kind of the framing is 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 really what I like. It's like it reminds me of when we uh, we started calling global warming climate change. Right. It's I I got ribbed from my friends on that one, which is which is kind of funny. It's like why why are they doing this? It's, it's almost like we're we're changing things here because it's for political reasons, and th that is absolutely the truth. It's it's right because you know it's you're you're trying to defend against the person that says oh glo global warming right? Well, it snowed in in my at my house yesterday type right. of thing. You're trying you're trying to avoid that thing, but also making it clear that no. Uh, I know that you you want status quo. That's why you don't want to do anything. But what you don't understand is that you're actually talking about a massive change. Yeah. yeah. So I like these reframings. The problem is that as as humans, we are very bad at making decisions today that will help us in the future. Right? We're very very good at making decisions today that will help us today at the compromise of our future. Just whether it's you know I'm I'm eating these Oreos, um, you know, like like I'm the the Russian guy on rounders, um, you know, and that's that's bad for me. It, it tastes good today, 
it's bad for me tomorrow, right? But I'm not terrible at making that decision. And, and the same is true here. Like we can be presented with all these facts, but it does cost some money today. And we're not sure if we're going to be alive when that money yeah. is going to be spent, right? So it, it's very good to frame it. And then we have to keep banging that drum. And the hard part is, as humans, we're good at making decisions today that may not help us in the future and, and vice versa. So absolutely. And I think quantifying it is is the is the way to do it. Oh, and we can beat the drum all day long, but you put numbers to it and people start to realize, well, maybe, maybe I don't want to leave this sort of crushing debt with with my right. offspring. You know, right. maybe, 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 maybe. Yes. <laughs> On that note, finish us up strong with another article. OK, so this one is about uh, geomagnetic storms. So I, I picked one, and there's been there's lots of articles on uh, geomagnetic magnetic storms because it happen all the time, obviously. But I wanted to, I just picked this one simply um, to talk about the topic, but also it's the largest one in the last five years. So okay. um, the title is geomagnetic storm warning issued after 17 solar flares erupt from a single sunspot. That sounds ominous. Um, so, so I'll start off by saying that this this time this wasn't actually that significant of a, an event, though it, as I said it was the largest one in five years. But the point is is that this happens constantly, consistently. It's a good good excuse to talk about coronal mass ejections and solar flares and their effects on the planet. So this particular one was uh, was classed as a G3. Now the scale is uh, G1 to G5, just like we do for major uh, sorry extreme weather. Um, in fact, it, what's neat is that you can you can track these on the NOAA site, NOAA Spe uh, Space Weather Prediction Center uh, website. Uh, it just it just looks like the Weather Channel. Like they have three 30 minute forecasts, three day forecasts, just like just like Earth weather. It's really interesting. Wow. Okay. Yeah. okay. And um, so as you're probably aware that these storms are typically only visible to us closer to the poles where they interact with the atmosphere in a phenomenon that everybody knows as the aurora, obviously. Um, but CMEs and the solar flares are they're no joke. Uh, they don't just manifest as pretty lights. So I should probably just mention CME and solar flare. There is a difference between those two. Coronal mass ejections are eruptions of plasma, which, as you know, is highly energetic um, gas like phase. And uh, solar flares are localized bursts of uh, electromagnetic radiation. And CMEs, because they do have mass, because they're actual par particles, they are slower than solar uh, flares. Um, but they often do correspond, like they come together, but we actually don't know what their relationship is. We're still, okay. still sort of working on that. Yeah. So uh, just talk about some recent damage from uh, geo yeah. storms. Yeah. So stations, uh, satellites and stations in low Earth orbit um, up to about a thousand kilometers, they're really susceptible not only to directly being damaged uh, from from direct overload, but they can also be deorbited. Uh, the density really? of the yeah yeah this is this is really interesting the, the the density of the atmosphere is really low obviously at that point <laughs> like I get I, I I predict most people wouldn't even know that there is some some atmosphere but there is but it's sparse but it's increased um, significantly uh, by the heat provided by the storms and uh, I was looking at the charts and everything it's amazing it's it's uh, it's exponential um, and and the increase in the the drag is is significant now specific events this caused the early deorbiting of Skylab back in 1979. And actually earlier this year, SpaceX lost around 40 satellites due to the same phenomenon. Really? And yeah, yeah, crazy. Um, and uh, you, you probably, you may know about this one, but um, NORAD 1967 lost connection to half of its uh, satellites. And if you can read more on it, it's, I don't know, 
it's an interesting story, but basically people say that it was pretty close to starting a nuclear war, but you can read about the details on that one. Okay. Um, yeah. And then uh, 1989, famously, a, uh, a, a solar flare took out the uh, the power grid in Quebec. Um, but uh, we've had, a, we've also had events of uh, really significant size before. And the, of course, the most famous one, and I need to mention it, is the Carrington event, largest geomagnetic storm ever recorded. Uh, allegedly, you could see the aurora as far south as the tropics. And mm. uh, yeah, it's interesting because there's no real electronics at the time to be affected, but they did have telegraph lines. And um, the stories are that there was so much extra current flowing through them that fires were started. And uh, the machines were even operating after they were disconnected from their power supplies, which is uh, crazy. Because, um, of, because of how much electromagnetic, uh, you know, activity there was? No isn't kidding. that nuts? Can you, can you imagine that now? But so is, is, there, is there a scenario, you know, at the risk of being doomsday, but I've been watching a lot of Marvel movies lately. Um, is there, is there a, so these are all indirect impacts on humans, like fires and, and grids. Is there ever a scenario where it's so big that you have direct impact on humans? No. no well, no, not from the sun. Um, you, you could, like, if you go... If you go to other phenomenon um, outside of our, you know, asteroids. Well, I wasn't even talking about asteroids. I'm really still talking about um, particles. Like if you get into magnetars and that, if you want to read something terrifying, read about magnetars. Magnetars. Anything that puts out a lot of high um, radiation, high gamma rays in that, where it it, it literally annihilates everything within so many um, light years. It's it's absolutely crazy. I'm not trying to scare people. This is just <laughs> this is just stuff that be beyond our sun that that can cook us. But it's still it's still really bad for us in in in, uh, in other respects. Like so so there was there was an event um, 10 years ago that was Carrington sized event. So I, I was just talking about how it didn't affect much back then. But if this happened now, it'd be totally different. And we got lucky because the sun was literally just pointed um, in the other direction, essentially. We missed it by nine days, meaning nine days earlier, we would have been directly in the path. Really? Yeah. So, you know, and in all of this, what's the connection to energy? What's what, what am I really talking about here? Well, the electric grid is not really protected against these events. And uh, there was a study a few years ago that uh, where they talked about potential recovery periods, and this was in North America, if, uh, if there was another Carrington-sized right. event that were to hit us, and the conclusion was that the limiting factor was really the replacement of the unprotected transformers throughout the grid. And they figured that even if governments could take over private companies, which is debatable, to prioritize that sort of production, the best case would be replacement in two years. But I recently read another one, and their conclusion was more like 10 years. So, right. So, um, you know, and the uh, I guess the other part about this is that we're, we're on the up to a, a, a solar... Uh, activity peak, which peaks around 2025, which just means that the probability of these things increases Increase. as time goes on. Wow. Okay. Have a great, have a great day, everyone. Anyway, that's, that's it. <laughs> don't all worry. I, all I can think of, uh, you, you lost me at gamma rays. All I can think of is is the Hulk and the oh, Infinity Gauntlet. Yeah, uh, they're not as cool as they are in the comic books. Right. right. Bummer. Yeah. Bummer. Well, that's... Um, I will uh, I will ramp up my SPF on my sunscreen uh, <laughs> leading up to 2025. Uh, never never boring with you, Davidson. That's that was great. That was a good one. Well, uh, let's finish strong. We'll bring in our uh, producer, uh, the man that makes us look and sound good, Mr. Mark Charbonneau. Uh, Mark, how do you feel after all that news about uh, radiation and plasma and all that stuff from the solar system? 
Well, look at how bright I am. Can't you see that? Uh, yeah, it's already hit you. Look at that. Shining down on me here. I'm going to try and lessen my brightness. There we go. Um, interesting stuff, gentlemen. I'm going to steal some of those articles for my energy news segment. So. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, and, and on that note, um, slightly different topic here. Um, you were right, Matt. The Jurassic World uh, comes out on the 10th, I believe. So it's like next week. Coming I soon, guess there's right? some matinees on the Thursday, right? So okay, okay. Um, uh, so this, 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 this face-off topic is in honor of the Jurassic uh, series. So Correct. take it away, so, Mark. So I actually had no idea it was coming out so soon. My son has been asking about it. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'll have to Google it. And I haven't got around to doing it. So he's going to be super stoked when he finds out next week. You're welcome. Because um, we've been big fans of it ever since I was a kid even. So, uh, yeah. So, and the topic um, is about uh, reviving extinct species. So that's our, so the pros and cons of reviving extinct species. Uh, dinosaurs could be can we get to, So dinosaurs, I mean, are there any beyond dinosaurs? Are there any other um species that we can think of to help frame the discussion well we could Sorry. go ahead bill well, i was just gonna say that the one that we talk about probably the most lately um are woolly mammoths because uh-huh. because they, they didn't go extinct that long ago we do have dna so um it would be hypothetically the easiest plus we have close ancestors um for them which are you know modern elephants so hypothetically um, if you have the DNA, you could do a bit of a cell transfer here, a cl- cloning, so to speak. Uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer is what it's actually called. And um, you basically, you put it into a modern um, elephant and you get a woolly mammoth on the other side. So there are lots of other species where we, we have, the, like even more recently have gone extinct, where we have more DNA in that. So there, there are other uh, possibilities as well. So technically, it's, are, are, we're debating the the uh, ethical nature of this, not the yeah. technical nature, correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so are we going to stick with just a very general, as in just reviving a species, or are we going with woolly mammoths here? I think we should go with species in general. Okay. Yeah. Now, yeah. the other thing, my other question would be, if if would it not be, it wouldn't be an exact copy of what they had back then if we're if they would crossbreed it with an elephant correct so it would sort of no, be a hybrid it it depends on a hybrid it depends on how you do it right because um do we have time for this <laughs> but um so you have different ways that, that uh, we've been we've been talking about this for decades right so wh- how are we gonna do it because we can't clone everything so the example i just gave is something where um where you actually could clone it so if you literally had um d- the the dna of an, an animal all of it um or, or at least close um then you you could all you'd be using that elephant for is um you know is, is basically something to implant into right uh that there would actually be no hypothetically unless you needed to there would be no dna from from the elephant itself so it, hmm, it's I literally see. yeah so that but that's only but that's only one way there's so other other ways of doing it are through um genetic engineering like using CRISPR right and uh, another way which is probably the easiest way but but also um is give it's farthest away from what the original would have been like is backbreeding right where that's where you you basically take this is where I've known, I don't know if you've ever heard this this uh term before but the chickenosaurus comes from because chickens are of course dinosaurs right yeah like literally dinosaurs not like dinosaurs they are dinosaurs so they still have the genes for dinosaurs in there kind of like we have our, our primate ancestors um, DNA in there. So so we, we all have dormant genes that we could turn back on hypothetically. So you could have a chickenosaurus running around right now if we want. We've already done it actually with chickens, which is awful. 
Um, yeah. I think it's awful. I shouldn't say that because I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't so I, I, so I, yeah, next would be a surrogate elephant then for. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, man. that's a good description. A surrogate <laughs> elephant. Surrogate yeah. elephant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, then let's go pros and cons. I'll let Matt call the toss here. Okay. Pros and cons of reviving uh, extinct species. Tails. Since we're talking animals, tails. Well, they got. It heads. actually is. I see the tails. moose. Yeah. Tail. Right on. Those uh, are cons, Matt. Moose. What kind of what kind of uh, currency you got there with a moose on it? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a deer, isn't it? Not it's a, a moose. It's, no, it's a moose. It, no, it's a caribou. We'll it's go car- it's a caribou. Oh, okay. Good Canadians we are. We don't even know what's on the court. <laughs> um, so I will be um, I will be con. I will be against. Uh, what, what's the phrase? We're, we're not saying resurrecting because that would be from the dead. Reviving. 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 Okay, reviving. So shall I start or shall um, Davidson start? I'll let you make that decision. You won the okay, talk. Davidson, you go first. Pros ah, first. Okay, I got to go first, and I'm pro. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So we 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 just talked. We just gave a little bit of background, more than we probably needed to. Um, <laughs> but we've had you know we've had massive advances in, in genetic engineering um, lately. You know, CRISPR is still in the, the news constantly, and and uh, cloning is still out there. And this has all happened in, in my lifetime, especially um, in the last uh, handful of years. It's inevitable that the ability to resurrect extinct species would happen through through one of these methods. methods. So the question is, uh, of course, should we do it? And my answer is yes. I want to talk about biodiversity, okay? Um, we all know about the devastating effect our presence has had on the fauna of this planet. Reduction of biodiversity has led to uh, a cascading negative feedback loop which accelerates extinctions. Now, we have the ability to to plug these holes with species that were in many cases prematurely taken out of the equation. So we have many ecosystems that have fallen apart from human activity. You know, bringing back these species would be a major step in that recovery. Um, It would need an overall serious approach to sustainability to avoid a reoccurrence of the collapse, obviously, but it gives us another chance to do this. So ecosystems have had uh, specific Keystone species whose presence, you know, greatly contributes to maintaining the status quo or or their absence would lead to a collapse. We can be extra efficient if we target just those species where where we have that knowledge, of course, which we do for for a bunch of uh, different environments. Now, there's a morality component to this, an ethics component. In the cases where we displace these species or we displace the ecosystems, don't we owe it to them them to, to bring them back now that we can? We have the ability now. It was our selfish, selfish march Um, of progress that resulted in the loss of biodiversity in the first place. It's the same progress that has given us the technology to bring them back. So, you know, how could we not use it? Plus, let's just talk about the awesome factor. We can look into the past. It's like turning back the clock, but in controlled settings. Um, You know, how could we not take advantage of this? Think of all the additional uh, avenues of science, scientific discovery that we can increase our knowledge in and further our technical progress. Um, of course, there are ethical considerations to address here. We're not going to allow a Jurassic Park scenario here, um, but this will always be the case with new technology. The ethics conversation is part of that whole package and assuaging fears with substantive solutions. It's a necessary part of new scientific endeavors. You know, have you ever read about the arguments that arose from the advent of motorized vehicles at the, the turn of the 20th century? Um, you know, as they were replacing the horse and buggy. It, they, those arguments seem quaint now, but at the time, it wasn't that easy of a sell that, that you might think it was. But we can look backwards, and that progress was inevitable. We know that now. So, in conclusion, we can approach the, the reality of being able to harness the power of genetics and biology with fear, 
or we can approach it with a spirit of scientific progress and environmental sustainability. The second one is always going to be more work, both in scientific and ethical development, but I think it's clearly the path that we want to take if we're going to be progressive stewards of this planet. Thank you very much. So I'd like to uh, ask the official for a ruling here. It's my conviction that Davidson's got a foot in both camps because he 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 starts out saying, yeah, I'm pro bringing back all the species that we did away with, but but the, the ones that were gone before we got here, no, 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 we're not bringing them back. So are you pro or are you con? Like, you know, I, I liked where you were going initially, but then you, you, you stole my line because you started to reference Jurassic Park. Um, so, you, you, you know, you picked your own line. So I don't think that was really the debate. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be anti bringing species back. And my, my leading point is, uh, go watch Jurassic Park. I mean, look at the, look at how sideways that went, you know, um, you know, so, um, you know, I think, you know, who knows what the next one will, maybe the next, probably the next Jurassic Park has to do more with, you know, climate change and sustainability and that kind of stuff. So maybe they figured it out in the final, in the next installment, but I, I, I were, you know, we can talk about, you know, micro or macro evolution, and I'm not sure I understand the difference, but we've gotten to a point, you know, for a reason or in, in, a, in a certain way. Um, and, and now we're, we're, we're looking at opening up Pandora's box. I, I don't, I don't know if we know what kind of, you know, potential uh, additional harm we, we, we might be raising, right, with, with new species and new things that we didn't have in our, um, in our climate that we haven't evolved to, to adapt. Could we be bringing back a Tyrannosaurus rex who's going to eat all of our kids, or are we bringing back a dodo bird that's going to have a flu that, you know, is going to make all of us sick? Uh, I think the unintended, you know, consequence is not just getting eaten off the toilet in a in a porta potty in a amusement park, but you know the other ramifications, um, you know, and and I think our resources and our efforts should be focused, you know, and our great minds should be focused on tackling the issues of keeping the current species that we have and the current, you know, in, including humans in that and the current, you know, getting us to a place where we can at least survive. Um, now I I may have a half of a toe in in the other camp because I I kind of like I would like to see a woolly mammoth that'd be kind of cool um, but I think you know at the end of the day we are opening up a can of worms a Pandora's box that we don't yet know the um, the full extent and I I don't think that's wise or safe. Yep. Okay. Excellent points. Both. I agree. I'd love to see a woolly mammoth too. You know, but I think. Um, I got to go with uh, Matt on this one. What's what's gone, let yeah. be gone. And because uh, we don't know the ramifications of, you know, bringing something back on the climate, on the humanity, on the other species. Right. So I say, yep, leave them, Bill, leave them extinct. Bill, if you had won the coin toss, would you have been pro or con? I still think I would have taken prawn. Although, okay, uh, that's what I thought. Yeah. Or pro. Okay. pro. I'm trying to take both. Um, pro, pro. But I did. My points for, for con would have been um, similar in that. Um, we, we've actually done studies on the idea of what it would cost to, to, to um, bring them back. And the truth is, if you took that same money and put it into extant species to fill those same gaps that I was talking, of course, I wasn't going to mention that part. But, the, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, if, if you put that money in, into uh, current programs of species that are on their way out, but we could stop, it actually is, is uh, um, money more well spent. There you go. Right. Okay. right. So, so okay. I... I would agree with that side of it, but in my mind, the cool factor over overrides everything. 
that's where you know it, it kind of that's where my weight is and i do want to point out that jurassic park is not a documentary just so <laughs> right yeah i'd like to know the difference between um extinction be- due to human um reasons and versus uh, before humans like obviously we would never know that information but it'd be interesting to know how many ex- how many species have been extinct since humans have populated the earth we have actually really good estimates so so um i you know i don't have the numbers here because they change all the time but um you can actually go see what the baseline was for extinctions and then basically what we've caused hmm. yeah and, and you can go see what the assumptions are and whatever but a lot of it like you know, obviously, we think about us driving something to extinction because we we hunted all the mammoths or something like that, right? That's a that's a big deal. Um, but that's very uh, very small number. Most of it is just the, because we've changed the environment, their habitat is not right. livable for them anymore. And and most things that go extinct aren't the big um, aren't, aren't these uh, big mammals. We're talking about inse- insects and and all, all kinds of stuff, right? Because they, they just insects well beetles outnumber everything else, right? So. Yeah, and, and and for all of our trying, we haven't made the mosquito go extinct. Like, what what, what are we doing wrong here? Well, that's that's that was one of my other debate topics. Um, is should we? Because we actually can. We we have gene engines now. We have the uh, the technology to do there that. There should be no debate. That that there should be no debate. Anyways, we'll I would like to have that one. Anyway, we'll tease yeah. that for for another for another day, gentlemen. As always, thank you. Never boring. Uh, perhaps insightful. Perhaps fun. Um, appreciate uh, the great face-off appreciate the articles and to our listeners we appreciate you Uh, always appreciate your feedback and your comments send us your debate topics send us your articles Mm. and until we meet again stay safe and have fun 